0: Load the plates and lift the weights, and we are mates, and weights are great. And as a plate we pontificate about the weights and make a podcast. Sumo is cheating.
1: This is Weekly Weights with Alex and Will. <laughs> All right, welcome to Weekly Weights. This is episode 30 something, 32? 33. 33. Um, and we're joined today by Jamie Smith of Melbourne Strength Culture. So Jamie is
0: the owner of Melbourne Strength Culture. He's a strength and conditioning coach himself. Um, he's got his bachelor's degree in exercise science. Um, and I guess as a gym, Melbourne Strength Culture has developed sort of in a powerlifting sense more than anything else. Like you've kind of gone that powerlifting route and you've developed quite a good, quite a good team of lifters. So you actually won best uh, male junior team at junior nationals. Um, you had a couple of lifters go to world championships in June and you had one or two go to open nationals as well so um one of the well, you've also got a really good youtube channel with some um great videos on movement prep and um
1: powerlifting movement stuff um before sorry before we actually dive into today's topic um your background in strength and conditioning i know you you spent seven or eight years interning under different people so do you want to maybe just rattle off sort of a bit more of your history over
2: yeah, definitely. I was waiting for the over. Yeah, but, yeah <laughs> perfect. perfect. Um, I'd said over then, but I wasn't over. I'll let you know when I'm over. Uh, so, was that it? No, nah, yeah, let not. me know when do you're that. done. Over. Okay, I can do that. So, I started personal training at 19. Uh, I got pretty much threatened to be kicked out of home if I wasn't either studying or uh, working full time. So, I. Left my first degree of a uh, double degree of business management and marketing down here in, in Melbourne, and I thought I need to do something before Mum kicks me out. So I decided to study personal training. So I did my certificate uh, certificate three and four out of the old cereal box back in the day. It cost me about two hundred and fifty bucks. It was mm-hmm. fantastic, and then uh, I just sort of developed along the personal training route until we started getting into strength conditioning. So I worked with uh, the VFL team down here, at Port Melbourne a very successful VFL club. So that's uh, AFL, uh, like the the tier underneath AFL down here in Victoria. Uh, I worked with them for a season. Uh, I then interned at uh, Woodford Sports Science Consulting, which is actually where I met my first coach, John Paul Kauke. I know he gets a lot of shout outs on a lot of Australian platforms, but he was my first hired coach. Uh, he He actually taught me how to Olympic lift. Original JP couch. Was, yeah, yeah. We well, that was me before I knew what powerlifting was. I was just, this is about five years ago now, five or six years ago now. Before I knew what powerlifting was, he he just introduced me to barbell training, good barbell training. And me being an SNC coach, I wanted to learn some very uh, tool for my box. And he had a little bit of background in it, so we just started doing Olympic lifting. And he actually gave me the nickname Snatch Lad because I used to snatch all the time. And that's still to now. I'm I'm saved in his phone as snatch lad. Uh, <laughs> and now you just
0: get heaps of snatch
2: lad. Yeah, that's it. And now I'm still a snatch lad. 100. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, so I, I trained under John Paul for about 12 months, uh, and then eventually we became training buddies, and that's sort of where our friendship started to develop. Uh, over that period there, interning, or not interning, I was sort of just training with Christian Woodford as well. Uh, I, I was hired at a AFL club, so uh, that's when my strength and conditioning sort of hit the peak. And then from there, I got fired pretty quickly, and then I moved to America to study under Eric Cressy and the team of Cressy Sports Performance in Massachusetts. For six months and then I worked there for six months and then I came home and started strength culture and that was about two years ago so yeah I've done a little bit of uh, moving around and learning and absorbing information from all sorts of different people around the world really so it's been great
1: yeah it's a really impressive resume um, what one of the big things and this has probably come particularly from your time I guess with Eric Cressy um, that you do at Melbourne strength culture is you assess the movement of pretty much everyone who walks through the doors so today Alex and I'd love to hear a bit about some sort of the protocols you use and how you develop that over time um, do you want to maybe just yeah start running us through imagining you had a new lifter come into the facility what you would do over yeah
2: definitely oh I didn't tell you guys I was over so no, Sorry. it's
1: okay we just inferred it over
2: yeah I fucked up from the start I'm not over yet let's
1: go um bro, so-
2: bro, no swearing on the podcast
1: yeah please no swearing Sorry, sorry. We've actually been intending. We're meant to mark our podcast as explicit. My friend told me on iTunes, or else you can get complaints. But when he told me that, I just went, you know what? Like, fuck them. Yeah. yeah. The cunts. Over. <laughs>
2: <laughs> all those all those eight year old powerlifters listening in, they might not be too happy. So, uh, but yeah, our screen system. So I started getting interested in just. Screening. I definitely did the wrong degree at university. I should have done physio. I knew about halfway through that I should transfer, but I was probably just in a little bit too deep with my S&C stuff unfolding as well that I just didn't make the switch over. So I've now just developed a system of assessment that a strength coach can use. Uh, there's, there's definitely we're not we're not diagnosing any issues or anything. We just sort of general generally look at movement capacity and sort of a movement diagnosis of what might be occurring and what might be causing certain tissues to be overloaded and then that's what we utilize now to sort of develop our we call them interventions whether it's a stability intervention or a mobility flexibility intervention so uh, if we get a new client they'll come through Uh, we do the general chit chat of like filling out forms and all that sort of stuff and we start to get sort of their injury or training history and, and, and where I like to call it painting the painting the landscape of the athlete. So where they've been, what their previous coaching sort of looks like, how their training is structured and all that sort of stuff. Uh, and then we move into, we have a, a full general assessment, which is like a dynamic assessment where standing position, global movements, we're looking at osteokinematics, so just bones moving relative to other bones, global movements like overhead squats, inline lunge walks, Um, We do some of the SMA, which we can talk about if you need to, but uh, we do a general assessment where we're just looking at global movement patterns, and then we start to break out and move into more specific stuff. So we actually look at active versus passive range of motion assessments. Uh, We do a few provocative tests, particularly for the hips and lower back to see if anything, uh, any red flags are going to pop up there down the track. Uh, and then we, yeah, we move through, it takes about 15 to 20 minutes. And from that, we can start to really develop their, their landscape of what they move like, what's holding them back, what their limitations might be.
1: So, sorry, can you just, um, you throw out a few terms there that probably not all of our listeners are going to be familiar with. Um, so yep. what's the difference between a global movement and a more local one? And then with provocative tests, how do they, how are they different from something like say an inline walking lunge?
2: Yeah. Do you just cut out for a second there? Did you say like more of a general test and then a specific test? That um, the first I, said, part?
1: I said you do some global movements. So what's the yeah. what's the yeah. difference between a global movement test and something else like a local one? And when would they be appropriate? That's number one. And then number two yeah. is what's a provocative test?
2: Yeah. Perfect. Cool. So our assessment process, and I think most assessment processes should follow this structure. Uh, There's two sort of governing ideas. You go through a general assessment, which is just general movement patterns. So we're not looking at anything objectively. We're not looking for ranges of motion, degrees of rotation or anything like that. We're just looking at subjectively, can you move in these patterns? Can you perform a squat? Can you perform a hinge pattern? Can you perform a lunging pattern? Do you have any major movement compensations through those positions? Uh, Do you have any pain? Are you experiencing pain? They're just very general movements. There's no objective viewpoint for them. Um, every coach does this every single session that they're coaching. They're looking at how their lift moves, under load, in their warm-ups, how they get up out of chairs and all that sort of stuff. It's just a very subjective viewpoint of movement capacity. So that would be more your general test. And then sort of your specific test is based from what you see on your general test, you will then go and dive in deep at joint position so if somebody's overhead position is limited and they have to bend their elbows or they they have to arch their back to get overhead the specific tests are designed to see why they do that movement compensation so we've been looking at range of motion of scapulothoracic thoracic joint the glenohumeral joint we might be looking at lat length unilateral bilateral we might be looking at their ability to elevate their shoulder blade and get away from depressed positions um, so specific tests we're actually starting to really dive in and and break out why their compensations are there. With a general test, they just general movements, how are you
1: moving and all that sort of stuff. Is
2: that clear about that?
1: Yeah, for sure. And then a provocative test, yeah. what was that?
2: Yeah so, a pro- yeah, so a provocative test for us, so we call them special tests or provocative tests, where specifically trying to either replicate their pain so if somebody has anterior hip pain, so pain at the front of their, their hip, there's a couple small tests, a Faber test and a Fadir test that you can do. They're special tests. They can be provocative if people have impingements or SIJ dysfunctions. Um, and if they were to show a red flag, i.e. the person was to present pain in those positions, that might just be a case where we refer out to our in-house osteo or somebody who can help us um, to determine whether or not that will actually be something that is going to be limiting us in their pursuit of whatever their, their goal is. So it's to really like just raise red flags um, and, and that's when we start to refer out,
1: yeah. Okay, I was hoping a provocative test might be conducted in your underwear or something, but that's all right. Um, I'll delay my trip to strength culture another month, or the
2: entire assessment is actually
1: naked. We want to just feel
2: comfortable and as close to earth and how we, how we were born as we can.
1: That's the ancient Olympic ideal, isn't it? It is naked. Yeah. yeah. So Charlie's actually, got a, Charlie's actually got a funny
2: joke down here. And when people ask, oh, should I take my shoes off? It's, it's more so you should be asking at the end of the session, can I put my shoes back on? Because we were born without shoes. So why is it more accepted that we have shoes on than have them off? Is, so that, is that a joke naked.
1: or is that just his like philosophy? Yeah, sure. But that's his philosophy. But it's, that's it, why we do things naked here the whole time. <laughs> All right, perfect. Um, so <laughs> once you've got them naked, what are the, yeah. what are the sort of movement errors that you see most commonly in powerlifters, um, particularly the ones that actually matter, mm-hmm. I guess. And have you got specific yeah. protocols for fixing them?
2: Yeah, so we we have every single decision, and I actually, uh, I, the Jacob Skepas episode, he said something really interesting, and I want to I want to raise that up again. We systemize every single decision process that we have. Uh, our entire assessment is systemized. Our, our interventions are systemized as well. But in saying that, it doesn't mean it's a blanket approach to the way that we go about fixing or improving these errors. It's we use creativity uh, within the system, and every single person, how they present will be a little bit differently and, and require a slightly different intervention. So everything is systemized from us. But, yes, we do have um, some regular things that we see. Uh, without a doubt, the most uh, prevalent issue is core bracing, core stability, poor breathing dysfunctions, um, and everything to do with what's going on inside the rib cage. Uh, without a doubt, it has the most implication on shoulder and hip function uh, and, and the way that the shoulder and the hip then present, particularly with powerlifting, uh, most of the time is directly correlated with either poor or dysfunctional positioning of core and ribcage and pelvic alignment. Um, so that's, without a doubt, the biggest thing. For us, uh, we use the 90-90 hip lift a lot, I, anyone that's seen any of our YouTube content or our Instagram content or any of that sort of stuff. It's, it's We take a proximal to distal understanding for core bracing and core position. We first need to get the big rock of core position correct, have the rib cage and the pelvis aligned in all three planes of motion, and then we can start to move into what's going on distally at the shoulder or the hip. Um, so that's definitely the biggest thing that we see. Uh, there's also an absolute rabbit hole for uh, breathing dysfunction. Some of the courses that Um, We've learned a lot, and they've been incredibly helpful for a lot of our our powerlifters. So we can jump down that if you need to. But um, secondary to probably core positioning, core bracing issues, uh, most powerlifters just get stuck in a depressed and downwardly rotated scapular position. So scapular thoracic function in upward rotation, protraction just is diminished by nature of our training. Everything is back and down with our shoulder blades. Uh, we get hypertonic rhomboids, we get hypertonic bilateral lats, we get hypertonic bilateral QLs on the posterior side of the spine, and, and that can then just shut down our ability to let the shoulder blades move through full ranges of motion.
1: So sorry, Jamie, just to interrupt you, um, again, just because I presume not all our listeners have training in anatomy, so yeah. um, so what is hypertonia, and what does yeah. bilateral mean? You said bilateral, lat, hypertonia. Yeah.
2: Bilateral lack contraction. So pretty much, um, so people think when a muscle is tight, and we'll get into this as well, but uh, a tight muscle is generally a a neurally active muscle. There's many reasons why something might feel tight and we'll go into those as well. But for the most part, the brain, when it activates a muscle, just sends tone down the central nervous system and and it activates the actual muscle. And that's how we contract. Um, So when a muscle is in a position to work a lot uh, and the bones are specifically uh, specifically, sort of set up in a way that the that muscle has good contraction properties and can actually create a lot of force, uh, generally that muscle will just start to work a lot more. So when you extend your spine and you sit up really tall, for the most part, the posterior aspects of the spine are in a good position to function, so they start to get tighter, and that's what hypertonicity would be. So those muscles just become a little bit overactive. Um, in terms of bilateral contraction, it just means that both sides of the body are contracting together. So both your left and right lat are working together. In a sport like powerlifting, everything is bilateral because um, when we squat, we use both legs. When we bench press, we use both arms. And when we deadlift, we use everything all together at the one time to stand up. So the sport of powerlifting is a very bilateral, it's in, in fact almost completely bilateral by nature. So we start to get a lot of the issues present on both left and right sides at the same time.
1: Okay. I was really proud of myself this morning because I was talking about back work and made the pun that bilateral means using both lats. Um, Anyway, he didn't get it, but I thought it was funny. (laughs) All right. That's very good. Yeah, we get bilateral
2: lat activation a lot in the power lift, believe it or not. So,
1: yeah. All right, so tell us why um, we'll get into probably bracing quite a bit because I think it's interesting, but why does being able to get out of depressed and retracted positions of the scapula matter? If in, say, like a bench press, when Alex and I have spoken about good benching technique, we want as much retraction and depression as we can get. So, yeah.
2: Definitely. So the way that we explain this here at Strength Culture is, believe it or not, we are not powerlifters by birth. Uh, we are humans when we are born and we are humans all the way through our powerlifting career and past powerlifting. Um, So just by human function, we must have access to all ranges of motion at any one point. Um, the, the, The human body thrives off variability. The easiest way to understand this is people assume that sitting is now the new smoking and that by being not active and not actually moving through any ranges of motion, we start to present with certain issues that sitting. We get a lot of back pain. We get a lot of hip pain. Uh, we get a lot of neck and upper upper extremity tightness because of the seated position as well. Um, and that is just because we sit down all day, every day. Uh, that inability to have any variability through the, the movement capacity of the human presents with issues. And the same thing happens when we throw in bench press squat and deadlift. For the most part, our shoulder blades are stuck down the entire time, and if you just continually load a back and down position, we never have access to those other ranges. Uh, If I had a whiteboard and everyone could see a whiteboard, there's there's a, the position of back and down, retraction and depression, Um, it it causes a few issues at the front of the shoulder, particularly, and that that brings about anterior shoulder pain. So any pain that presents at the front of the shoulder, which is quite common in squatting and deadlifting, uh, squatting and bench pressing, sorry. Uh, It is quite a common presentation, that pain. Um, For the most part, can be just cleared up so easily with just getting better scapular thoracic function. So better function of the scapula moving around the rib cage and up through its ranges away from that back and down position. And that's something that we teach heavily in our, in our sort of uh, our courses and educational stuff. Yeah. Does that, does that? Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, that answers the question. Um, and in terms of the actual powerlifting performance itself, does having access to that full range of motion have benefits?
2: So in terms of powerlifting, what I would say is powerlifting and, uh, and any coach with any understanding of what's going on, powerlifting is a longevity game more than it is anything else. And the person that is powerlifting the longest is generally going to be the strongest at the end of the day. Um, the longest with the least interruptions, the least injuries, the least niggles. They can promote more volume in their training. They can uh, Their frequency can be a little bit higher. Their tissue tolerance is just a little bit higher. So – Anyone knows that powerlifting is a marathon and not a sprint. And what we like to think about these sort of, and I quote unquote the term "correctives" because I don't think it's the right word to use for a lot of the things that we do because we're not fixing something that's broken. We're just trying to improve the system's functionality to allow it to tolerate greater loads and greater volumes. Um, so when we have better function of the upper extremity, the scapulothoracic joint, and the glenohumeral joint, and the T spine, and the rib cage, and breathing muscles. We can just generally tolerate more loads because the body's just in a better position to accept those loads. So will it improve the performance of your bench press? No, but will it improve your programming of the bench press over a long period of time? Without a doubt, 100%. Somebody without pain and without niggles is going to be so much more involved in their training than somebody who's constantly battling niggles.
0: Yeah, one, one way I like to put it is it's like a piece of the puzzle that builds a bigger foundation for the future.
1: Versus yeah. something that's going to help immediately. It's a very mixed metaphor. I like it. It's the puzzle. Yeah. It's the piece of the puzzle oh, that's the, the tip of, of the, the iceberg that forms the yeah. base of the pyramid. What I had in my head just then
2: was the pyramid was made of pizza and there was Italians instead of Egyptians building it. That's what I had in my head yeah. just yeah. then. Just but need, of course, too,
1: dough. But too many chefs obviously spoil the broth yeah. and the pyramid. Yeah. Which is why I can only have so many coaches at once. And the puzzle yeah. piece. And the puzzle pieces. Yeah. Before you just lose a puzzle piece and can't ever put it together. Over. Over. That might have been one of the best metaphors ever on weekly weights. So you might use that to advertise this episode. Hear all of this yeah. and more. Yeah. <laughs> all right, yeah. good. Um, let's talk a bit about bracing because um you were saying that's like the most common and also probably the most important thing you see. So yeah. how does proximal function so how does function close to I guess the center? Um how does that affect distal function? So distal being in the limbs and away from the trunk. And also, yeah, yeah okay. please, when you say an anatomical term, if you can give the layman's explanation, that's really good yeah. too. Um, just because my mum yeah, listens definitely. and she didn't study anatomy. Yeah, Don't
2: definitely. Uh, yeah, so the way that we look at proximal to distal function of the human body is uh, we like to go one step deeper than proximal just being uh, the muscles close to the centre, so your core position. We actually go one further and, and, and look at the diaphragm, and this is where we have to first start to understand the context for what uh, pr- proper breathing mechanics should look like. So the diaphragm sits inside the rib cage. It, it sort of is a transverse muscle. A lot of the skeletal muscles so the muscle that moves our skeletons through Uh, Ranges of motion and movement—they work longitudinal along the body. So you think about your bicep runs down your arm, your hamstring runs down your leg, your quads run down your leg as well, your abs run along your outside of your body. The diaphragm sits completely adjacent to all of that, so it's it's inside the rib cage at the bottom. And the way that it works is it's it's like a parachute. So in an exhaled position in a state of uh, relaxation, which is the exhaled position for the the diaphragm, it becomes like a dome and we have a left and a right leaflet and both of these leaflets sit inside the rib cage in a state of exhalation. And when we breathe, uh, what should occur is the diaphragm pulls down, down towards sort of your pelvic floor, and that that diaphragm drawing down changes the pressure inside your rib cage and allows air to come in. So that's how the contraction of uh, the diaphragm would force inhalation. And then as it relaxes, it becomes domed again. The pressure inside the thorax changes, and the air is pushed out of the uh, out of the thorax. There's also some intercostal muscles between the ribs that that function uh, in a similar manner to change the pressure difference between the thorax and the external pressure to allow air to come in. But for the... that functions on inhalation. When we start to talk about breathing and bracing, uh, they are completely different strategies. However, the diaphragm is the key point that uh, connects the two together. So when we inhale as the diaphragm draws down and sucks air into the lungs, it actually closes the space inside the abdominal cavity. And when that space is closed down, the pressure pushes out. And that's what your typical pressure that you feel is. And that's what the brace should feel like. It should feel like pressure from the inside pushing out and creating stability around the abdomen. And that's why it's called intra-abdominal pressure, because it is pressure inside the abdomen. Um, what tends to happen though, when we have a dysfunctional breathing pattern and particularly for powerlifters and a lot of athletes in general, they get stuck in what we call an extended position, which means that their lower back is arched. Um, generally their upper back is for the most part extended because they are in athletic endeavors the entire time, um, or in a lot of their, a lot of their training. So we get to this extended posture where you sit up nice and tall and your lumbar spine is quite extended. What this means for the diaphragm, um, it loses its potential to draw down because in that extended position, the ribs at the the front of the body, they push out. And that out or rib-flared position means that the diaphragm can't actually dome correctly on exhalation. And that means if it can't dome correctly on exhalation, it can't then flatten out and become uh, active on inhalation when it needs to contract. So as a result of that, we get a whole bunch of accessory breathing muscles starting to take over. The big ones uh, for powerlifters are the ones that that, that sit above the ribcage. So the SEMs uh, that sit in the neck. We have the scalene group as well that sit in the neck. We have the upper traps and we also have the pec minor at the front of the chest. All of those muscles have a really good line of pull of elevating the ribcage. And as the rib cage tries to elevate to get air in because those muscles become active because we're in an extended posture, we start to then see these typical sort of presentations of dysfunctional breathing that causes issues when we're trying to lift heavy weights. Um, and that's when we start to we can start to talk about thoracic outlet syndrome, uh, which is some of the uh, structures that run out of the neck, losing a, a bit of their available space. So they're getting pinged and we can get some pretty... Typical presentations of nerve pain down the arms and all that sort of stuff. Uh, we get, hyper, as we talked about before, we get overactive posterior elements of the spine. So the QLs and the lats become quite uh, hypertonic and, and overactive. And then that can cause a whole lot of back pain, uh, extension-based back pain, which is quite common with uh, powerlifters as well. I know Chrissy is dealing with some QL tightness there. Yep.
1: Um, so I just want to slow you down. You've, you've said so many things already. Um yeah. So you were saying, and we'll get back to some of those specific things you observed, but you were saying that it's important for your bracing function um, for you to be able to sort of um, brace into neutral, so to have your ribs and your pelvis aligned so you can create stiffness. I think it's a common belief among a lot of people that extension is a safe position, so having your back arched or, or is the safest position. And I think the rationale for that at least began with the idea that um, the disc herniations posteriorly, is this correct? Posteriorly would be more safe than anteriorly because it would preserve the spinal cord. So as in, if you arch, you're less likely to herniate in a really drastically bad way that damages the spinal cord. Is that correct? And what's the the truth about a safe spinal position?
2: Yeah, definitely. So I think the idea of moving to extended positions when lifting weights, I don't know where it started, but a, a lot of it, I think came from the fear of doing discs whilst training, and and for the most part, majority of disc herniations occur because of axial loading, so loading top down along the spine um, on a flex or a moving into flexion vertebra uh, is the mechanism for which a disc can then um, then herniate out the posterior side of the spine, so at the back side of the spine. So I got that backwards really- then. Yeah, yeah. So so when the yeah, under a flexed position, under load is probably the, the the least safest position for your discs. So I think a lot of the arching idea and philosophy or the arching cueing came as a result to stay away from that position. Because let's be honest, nobody wants to do a disc. And unfortunately with powerlifting the way that it is, it's almost inevitable that there will be disc herniations just by nature of trying to lift maximal loads whilst being bent over. Um, some people are just going to not be able to tolerate those loads and those forces moving through their spine. So we will get issues. um, And there is always risk with any sort of endeavour, sporting endeavour. So I think a lot of the idea about getting now to an arched position is to protect from that mechanism. But as a result, we now have other injuries that could then come or or be arise from loading in that extended position. Um, The ones that jump into my head quite quickly, facet joints, Um, so the small joints that join the two vertebrae together, they can get uh, impinged and and, and be a bit pissed off and irritated. Um, You get, as we talked about, QLs, so the two muscles on the lumbar spine, just on either side of the spine, they can get really overactively worked and become really, really tight and restrict a lot of other movement. Um, We get SIJ issues, so where the spine joins to the sacrum. uh, Oh, sorry, where the sacrum joins to the ileum, so the pelvis, so where the spine and pelvis join together, they can then be under uh, a lot of uh, extra forces loading in that extended posture. So for the most part, the position that we want to lift in is a neutral spine. Um, So as a result of all this together, most people are extended by nature. Anterior pelvic tilt is not an issue. Uh, Jander's lower cross syndrome is not an issue. There's some ideas that being in an extended position by nature is, is an an issue for loading. The only issue arises if you can't get away from that extended posture and then get back to neutral. So whether or not you can't coordinate your muscles back to neutral, or you've lost the mobility, your joints can't actually get back to that position to a neutral position. Neutral is where we want to lift. It's where we want to load. It's where we want to be when we're loading. For us at Strength Culture, the way we teach a neutral spine, we want to have the ribs down, so that we close that diaphragm and allow it to function a little better for breathing and respiratory uh, reasons and also bracing. And then also we we cue a belt buckle. We just want to roll the hips ever so slightly underneath and just get yourself slightly out of that excessively extended position, so more to a neutral. So we're moving from extended to neutral. We're not moving from neutral to flex, if that makes
1: sense. Um, So you spoke just then about bringing your hips just underneath you to help with bracing. Um, And when I, when I introduce this concept to a lot of people at the top of a squat, I'll tell them to use their abs and their butt to just bring themselves a little bit out of extension. But many then almost end up like too extended at the hips and they're rolled under themselves. Um, How is it that you, how do you frame the discussion so they don't go from, yeah, from extension into actual flexion? as opposed to sort of neutral. Yeah, definitely. definitely.
2: So we have a progressive stream of core bracing and core positioning that we use with every single person that has ever trained under our uh, banner, so to speak. Um, we have what we call a low threshold learning environment and then a high threshold learning environment. So for you to just then describing a squat and getting them to move into that position in a squat, so that would be standing for us and loaded. So that would be a higher threshold learning environment. So first we will take them back to low threshold positions so when we talk about developmental positions, um, lying on the ground, we get a lot of feedback from the floor, proprioceptive feedback from the floor, and we can feel a lot more of our body in the positions it's in. So we actually use our breathing, uh 90-90 breathing, as our first uh, regression for bracing, where we allow them to lie their back on the ground. They can feel their back in the position that's in, and they can also feel a little bit more um of what's going on at the lumbar spine and their pelvis, so their lower back and their pelvis. From there, we would then progress them to a plank position where, it's again, it's a very low threshold. There's not a lot going on. It's only a slight loading of the anterior core. But we can start to position them through different ranges and we can say this is too far and then this is where we sort of want you to feel. And once we have that sort of awareness, we start to cue the same cues that we're going to be using for their squat. So for us, it's ribs down and belt buckle. If we can hammer ribs down and belt buckle queuing in those low threshold environments, once we start to expose that in higher threshold environments, generally the um, presentation is a lot more what we're looking for. Uh, from a plank position, we move into a dead bug with legs only, where they're practicing learning the brace and the, and the core position whilst the hip is moving. Again, it's lower threshold We're against the floor. We get a lot of feedback and then we start to get them in standing position. So we do back to wall shoulder flexions, um, and we do anterior squats where they hold the weight in the front, and it helps them set a little bit more of a, a better core or more optimal core position for squatting. And then we would put them in a the high threshold environment of squatting. So we follow that sort of progressive stream to get them where we want in a higher threshold environment.
1: So, how long does that progression normally take? Is that within a session, within a couple of sessions, or is it a matter of weeks?
2: No, definitely within a session. Most people that really want to learn these things will pick it up very quickly. A couple of sets of 90-90 breathing, one set of planks, one set of dead bugs, one set of standing lower threshold stuff, and then straight in. We also use planks uh, and the breathing drill between warm-up sets, which is a really good way for you to just draw on more context and really practice that position. So, yeah, you, for most people that really want to learn it, they'll they'll learn it pretty quickly the set, within the session.
0: So what about someone you have who's already started with you? What would you do for like a warm up to get them into this correct position before they begin squatting for instance?
2: Yeah, definitely. So again, we have a system here that all of our warm ups follow. We have a uh, the same idea that we started to talk about with the bracing proximal to distal. We have a general warm up that we require our athletes to do every single day. Uh, the proximal warm up for us is 90 90 breathing first, or a variation of breathing drills specific to them. We have a few other ones, but for the most part, the 90 90 catches a lot of the things we're looking for. So we'll do three sets of breathing. And then we work through just a proximal to distal general warm-up. So they'll have some sort of core activation, core stability drill. They'll have some sort of hip activation, hip stability drill. They'll have a reaching pattern unloaded against a wall more often than not. And then they go in through some locomotion. So some sort of lunge progression, a Spider-Man um, we have a, a lot of pullback butt kick variation. So where you go through a quad stretch and through that entire progression of proximal to distal, they're practicing holding that position in all those different, um, progressions. Once they do the general warm up, which takes between five to 10 minutes, we'll then get them into an actual squat. They'll start with a bar and then generally we, we just pair that with planks and we have a plank in between They can work on their bracing, uh, and then they go back into their next, next warm-up set by the time they've had about three or four warm-up sets we only want them squatting we don't want them doing anything else squat hit yourself and think about it take on your cues take on your feedback from the coach and then go back and implement again so once those three or four warm-up sets are out the door we are just squatting we're not doing anything else
1: sweet that's awesome um i think we should take a quick break and then we'll come back and we'll talk a little bit more about some like powerlifting, lifting specific stuff Welcome back to Weekly Weights. It's episode 33? Three, yeah. Yeah, 33. We're back on air with Jamie from Melbourne Strength Culture, and we've been talking about assessing and correcting movement issues in powerlifters. We got pretty in the weeds talking about bracing and um, and the importance of being able to assume a neutral spine position. But, um, but something we haven't covered really is in the bench press, where we do actually want to arch as much as possible, Um, at least like for the mechanical advantage, Jamie, you said there were some issues with shoulder function that can arise from being in extension all the time. How does that relate to benching and how do we create stability in the bench press in that position?
2: Yeah, definitely. Cool. Um, so the way again, that we talk about the bench press is for the most part, the squat and the deadlift and I don't like using this term, but they're very natural human movements. Uh, They're very easy uh, to understand and how they've sort of been utilised through our development of evolution. The bench press sort of fits in its own category. And and the the reason that for the most part, and again, I don't like the term natural and unnatural because we're humans, we're all doing things that the body can do. Uh, The disassociation of keeping the shoulder blades back and down whilst the arm is moving is quite an awkward thing. And I'm sure you guys have probably experienced that. This is probably the the thing that takes the longest to develop with a lot of uh, newer lifters. The idea of not letting their shoulder blades move whilst they're moving on a bench press. Have you guys felt
1: that? That's Will all over. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I'm just such a natural athlete that obviously for me (laughs) to put that aside and be still when I bench is very difficult.
0: You literally like couldn't touch the net
1: on a basketball hoop. Yeah, I mean, I'm a natural grounded athlete. I'm good. The yeah, Jamie, let's not interrupt the, you. Yeah, you were so saying we, good things before we roasted me.
2: Yeah, no, that's fine. I'm happy with roasting. Um, <laughs> so yeah, the, the in terms of a beginner lifter, without a doubt, the hardest thing to teach is keeping the shoulder blades back and down whilst the arm is doing its thing on a bench press. And for me, that is because it's just not the way that the shoulder complex is designed to function. The way that the shoulder complex should work is the shoulder blade and the arm should work together in all ranges of motion. So when you reach your arm forward to try and grab something, the shoulder blade should reach with it. So that's what's happening on the bench press. As you go to push the bench press up, you're now trained yourself to keep your shoulder blade back whilst the arm moves forward. And then that's where you get that disconnect. And it takes a long, long time to develop that motor pattern for a lot of beginner lifters. So in terms of arching and the position that we want to try and get yourself in for the longevity of your shoulders, we want to try and create as much posterior tilt of the shoulder blade. So if you think about your two shoulder blades sitting on the ribcage, what we're trying to do is we're trying to take the bottom part of it and push that closer to the spine. So we're almost like rolling the shoulders back. That's what we call posterior uh, posterior tilt of the scapula. Uh, and that's what the position that we need to do that, uh, the, the position that we need to be able to get into for a strong and stable bench press
1: position. Um, what muscles are responsible for that posterior tilt and what muscles would oppose it?
2: Yeah, definitely. So. The two big key players for posterior tilt of the shoulder blade is, is the lower trap. So the trap muscle uh, runs all the way up into the occipital bone up, up in your neck, runs all the way the length down your spine to where your thoracic spine, so the, the curved spine, meets the lumbar spine, um, so your 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 entire mid-back. And, the, and the, the, the trap muscle is built into three separate um three separate heads. We have the upper trap, which is uh, joins onto the collarbone. And that's really good at elevating and upwardly rotating the shoulder blade. So allowing the shoulder blade to move up and down the rib cage. Uh, you have the middle trap, which also aids in that rotation and also a little bit of retraction. So pulling the shoulder blade closer to the spine. And then you have the lower trap. and And by nature of that extended position that I talked about earlier, about having the extended lumbar spine and not letting your diaphragm uh, be in a good zone of appos- opposition, so a good zone of opposition to breathe and, and contract into. Um, the lower trap is then in a position where it doesn't get a lot of love. So the lower trap can aid in upward rotation. The way I like to think about it is it supports the shoulder blade from the downward aspect so that it allows the other stuff to then rotate. It almost pinwheels the shoulder blade up. Um, it's quite hard to describe without a, an image. Um, but the lower trap posteriorly tilts that shoulder blade. Along with the serratus shoulder blade sitting on your rib cage, there's a muscle that sits between the two bones, and that's called your serratus anterior. Both of those guys working together hold the shoulder blade close to the rib cage. And for us, that is posterior, posterior tilt. So if we can get both of those guys functioning together, and doing maybe some pre-activation work before you bench, you'll probably find that your shoulders can sit a little bit further back. You create a lot more space at the front of your shoulders and a lot of those passive structures and passive restraints at the front of your shoulder can get unloaded and it allows you to move through better bench press sort of stuff.
0: What are the uh, go-to exercises for that before bench press that you use with your lifters?
2: We have about 15 videos on our YouTube channel. So if you just search on our YouTube channel, but um, the big ones for us for the lower trap are prone one arm trap raises, which is a, you lie on an inclined bench and you sort of move your arm up into elevation. Uh, Again, the lower traps function is primarily upward rotation and supporting that, that action. So we need to get the arm overhead to allow that to activate a bit better or switch that on a little bit better. So uh, prone one arm trap raise would be our go-to for our lower trap, for our serratus. So that muscle that sits underneath the, the shoulder blade in between the rib cage. We use a lot of, uh, again, reaching patterns because both of those muscles best function when the shoulder blade is moving upward, upwardly rotating. So we use foam roller wall slides, we use push up variations, uh, even landmine presses can be really, really good at, at helping us get some connection with those
1: two muscles. So this is interesting because previously we were talking about how the shoulder operates in retraction and depression um, when we're bench pressing. And you said, one of the things you'd actually said was that training into protraction and elevation was important for shoulder health, but it also sounds like those are the positions in which we load those very important supporting muscles that help us lift big loads in the bench.
2: Definitely, yeah. So again, these things aren't gonna help you lift bigger weights, but they are going to help you support the structures that are lifting the bigger weights. Um, So to me, they're imperative. And if you're not doing any sort of movement prep away from the bench press, squat and deadlift positions, you're missing some big key players that could be helping you. And a lot of niggles get cleared up very, very quickly just by incorporating a few, we call them reaching movements a few movements where you let the shoulder blades move and, and move around and rotate and move in the other directions that are available to them. Those reaching patterns can be game changers for people. You say
0: they won't actually help you lift bigger weights, but they actually will if you're patient enough to stick with it and
2: they'll add, add to later. Yeah, Perfect. Yeah, exactly right. Play the long game. It's uh, Again, it's a marathon, not a sprint. If you power lift for five years, John Paul Kaki talks about this. If you just put above average amount of effort into your training three to four days a week over 10 years you'd probably be surprised at just how strong you get those quick flutters of smashing training getting injured stopping like it's just it's not a good cycle to get yourself into you play the long game think about your body as longevity and you'll, you'll, you'll reap rewards down the track
0: have you uh, have you listened to episode 29 long-term
2: development
1: jamie I have not
2: listened to that one. No, get I it. need
1: to get around that one. Yeah, get around no. it. Yeah. There's some good weekly words jams in there too. Um, I want to bring this back to seriously, this is great improv singing. Um, I want to bring this back to what we were talking about extension though. So you, so we're talking about creating an arch in the bench press. You need that posterior tilt of the scapula you described. Um, what about spinal position? And yeah, how do we go about creating tension in the torso there? Or do you not think it's that important? Yeah,
2: definitely. No, it's definitely important. So um, for us, the way we get stability out of anything is, is through the ground and the, the stable structures around us. So when we stand up off a chair, we push down into the ground, uh, and that allows us support and stability to then create muscular contraction, and then we stand up and, and we're off on, on our way. So the same thing is occurring with the bench press. For us, our stability starts at our feet, and what we're doing to activate through leg drive. Uh, And then that then works up the chain into our position. So, yes, 100%, we're setting a nice, stable upper extremity position, so posterior tilt of the shoulder blades, retracted position to allow uh, a nice, stable base for us to press against. But part of that is supporting that with the rest of the human body. Uh, It's pretty easy to understand why we arch in the bench press is to reduce the range of motion. But that arch actually does a few other things for us uh, in terms of shoulder health. It it makes us less of a flat position and more of like a decline bench position. Uh, That actually is a a far stronger and safer position to press into for uh, the shoulders and and the pressing muscles. So that arch position actually helps us get into that, that sort of line of press uh, and then also that extended arch it just reduces the range of motion. So if we have the reduced range of motion, we're going to not have to stress the, the pressing muscles as much. The way that we support that arch or the way that we cue it is making sure we have nice, strong, stable legs. We're in a good position where we can create some force through the ground. We're then trying to also activate sort of, Uh, it's not so much a lat activation in terms of supporting the pressing motion, it's a lat activation in terms of supporting the spine and not letting the spine change shape whilst we start to press. Anytime we have that mobility occur or that movement occur, we've lost some stable foundation for the pressing muscles to press against. So we really want to press through the ground with our feet, stabilise the hips and the legs as much as possible and try and push yourself up the bench to allow your chest to stay high. I wanna just, again, go back to the squat and the deadlift are very, very easy concepts to understand for most people. The bench press is just not, we're not designed to move in this position. So it does take a lot, lot longer to develop the skills of bench pressing. Um, So, it is not something that you can do straight off the bat. It's something that you're going to be working on for a few months, even for the rest of your, your pressing and lifting career, to actually utilize the entire kinetic chain for a bench press.
1: So something that occurs to me is, um, you say squat and deadlift are natural, and a push-up almost always feels more natural than the bench press. In a push-up, we usually yeah. let people's shoulder blades move. Um, do you think that has utility for teaching people bench presses and would you ever do a push-up where you actually maintain scapular position or anything uh
2: we would not personally use a pinned scapula for a, a push-up at all and again it, as you said it just feels more natural um it, again i don't like the term natural and unnatural because we're just humans moving in a way that we've set a task to do so it's not that We're not designed to do this. We can do anything that we want to do with our with our body, but it it just is a far easier understanding to get a push up moving correctly than it is a bench press. Um, Personally, I would never pin a shoulder blade on 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 a bench uh, on a push up. Sorry, Uh, it's just it's we should be using the push up to help strengthen those other muscles that we talked about, serratus anterior. If you use yoga style push ups where you're pressing overhead. And lifting your hips up to the ceiling we can get some really good posterior tilt of the shoulder blade and actually start to, to to strengthen that lower track as well so we use push-ups as our sort of supplementary work to again strengthen those other muscle groups that help support the bench press but i wouldn't use it as a teaching tool for um bench press shoulder blade position probably not again because it's just such a you're at two different ends
1: of the spectrum so yeah. do, you have a, do you have any go-to teaching tools for teaching that shoulder position?
2: Yeah, definitely. So uh, we use a dowel rod, so just a broomstick, and we get them to set up into their position. We pull them down, that we let them rest the dowel on their chest. We tell them to find as better shoulder blade and arch and leg drive as they can. And then simply we just get the coach to start to pull slowly on that bar. And, that, and their goal is to let the bar come off their chest as slow as they can whilst maintaining that position. Once they get to arms locked, they come straight back down. And at any point, as we're starting to pull on that bar, at any point they start to feel the loss of that position, we tell them to stop, refind it, and then go again. So we use that a lot with beginners. And also, just if you use um, so like bent-over rows or seated rows or anything like that, even a lat pull-down you could probably do it on, get them into a loaded position. And you could do the same drill just with the seated row where you're holding that shoulder blade position and then as the arms start to move away from you, you're just maintaining. So you're just controlling that eccentric portion as best as you can. probably our yeah, two bench for
1: it. That sounds um, uncannily familiar to Alex's chest pull that he prescribes for bench as an accessory. Alex, do you want to just tell everybody the chest pull? So it's like it's like a face pull, but... Um, with the shoulders more depressed,
0: and we're pulling the rope to where the bar would be on the bench press, so pulling the elbows yep. out. Yeah, that's it. Pulling yeah, the elbows like, out, chest yep. up to the up to the rope. Yeah, it's like rope bench. Like it's kind of, it's kind of yeah, like, like yeah, it's yeah. kind of like doing a like a seated cable row, except your um, elbows are pointed out versus tucked.
2: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so that would work exactly the same. Anything that's going to help you eccentrically control. So as as the arms want to get away from you, anything that's going to help control the shoulder position and and slow people. I think a a lot of the time with these sort of, um, again, another term I don't like is activation, but all these activation drills, um, that people could be using I think people just hammer them too quick and they just try to get them out of the way but these are the, the little rocks that can make a big big difference to your technique over time um, so just slow things down and really focus and think about why you have this doing or why has your coach prescribed this why why is this in here how is this going to help you
0: and I've noticed a lot of your lifters use um, particularly in the squat and the bench press a lot of tempo work and that would be oh, for the same nothing, purpose. Yeah. Same yeah, he thing. Guys yeah. a huge on that, like seven, up to six seconds on squat and bench.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. We um I, again, the slower you move, the better control you have. The speed accuracy trade off. The quicker you move, the, the more <laughs> got a fist pump. Uh, I <laughs> um, talk about
1: it all the time. I like the stabbing a knife between your fingers analogy. Yeah, yeah. perfect. Yeah, if you go
2: slow, you're going to hit those gaps. But if you start to speed that sucker up, if you start to get stressed, like. Holy shit. Again, that's that high threshold environment that I talked about earlier. Speed is high threshold. Anytime you try to do something quickly, you you lose the ability to control all the moving parts at once. So if you just slow things down, like slow things down, you can get such better connection at certain points of the lift. Um, You just start to feel a lot better and you're in more control. And and again, that accuracy comes up and, and we're actually starting to move the weights the way that we want to move the weights not letting the bar win. You want to be in charge of the bar. If the bar gets in charge of you, you're, again, you're playing the short game.
1: 100%. All right. Um, we wrote down, Alex and I, a few specific um, specific questions that we've had from lifters and stuff um, that we wanted to ask you about. So one we got in the Q&A um, or a rabbit hole we got down <laughs> in the Q&A last week was talking about mixed grip deadlifting um, and how that can lead to asymmetries in the shoulder, trunk, and hip. And I just rat, ran my mouth, but I don't really know much about it. So what are the implications of deadlifting with a mixed grip? And are those asymmetries problematic, do you think? Um, yeah, Shoot.
2: Sure. Yeah. Um, so obviously uh, the mixed grip is almost a vital thing for most people unless they can want to battle hook grip um, and actually try and develop that. Particularly for female lifters who have smaller hands, Um, and can't get the thumb under the bar. The mixed grip is really the only option available. So obviously, as soon as we throw a unilateral, so a one-sided change to the body in a bilateral, a double-sided movement, so as soon as we throw one arm under and one arm over, obviously there are going to be some asymmetries that are a result of that. And it's going to change the motor, motor pattern that is recruited through the body. Do I think it's as big of an issue as some people make it out to be. I actually don't. A lot of the rotation at the forearm occurs at the radio ulnar joint, so the the joint just below your elbow. Um, A lot of the rotation occurs from that joint. So we're not actually gonna get as much rotation occurring upstream as you probably think. Do I think that for certain people, it could actually create issues? It it probably can. Um, Even just by anecdotal evidence, when you throw one arm over and one arm under, the bar can sometimes get that helicopter sort of feeling on the underarm. Um, In terms of activation patterns in extended joints, so when the hip or the shoulder is behind you, by nature, again, it just feels better when the thumb is coming in towards the pocket as opposed to the thumb turning out towards the outside. So that overhand is probably going to be in a little bit more of a stiffer, stable position compared to that underhand. And quite often you feel, or a lot of people, a lot of lifters will say, I just can't seem to get that lap tight. I can't seem to close the armpit as well with that underarm. So there probably will be some asymmetries that develop. I personally, again, I don't think it's as bad as what most... You're starting no, no, keep,
0: keep going on. So. Yeah, yeah. I, don't,
2: yeah, I don't think it's as I don't think it's going to create anything long term. That oh, you're going to be in debilitating pain when you're 45 or whatever. But I do think that if you are somebody who feels that change in activation, maybe it is worth, particularly in your warm ups, just alternating your grip, and then for your working sets, moving towards your stronger positions, um, because there there is definitely asymmetries, and anyone can see that and feel that from anecdotal evidence. It's funny that you mentioned that the overhand would particularly be better
0: in lat engagement. So you'd be able to get the bike close to you on the overhand, but I actually have the opposite problem. Do you have any oh. idea what would cause that? Cause I've had, a, I've had two deadlifts where like I got to lock out and my overhand was actually, my shoulder was forward on the overhand side, but on my underhand side, my shoulder was locked. Would you, do you have any yeah. idea
2: what would be causing that? Um, I'd probably have to have a closer look. Um, I just want to say asymmetry within the body, uh, uh, to answer your question quickly, I'd have to have a closer look. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be too sure. Um, my understanding of um, how the hip and the shoulder function is in extension, internal rotation is a tighter position. In flexion, external rotation is a tighter position. Um, so I, I wouldn't know for sure, but asymmetry as a whole within the human body is right. Absolutely right. When we look at how I talked about the diaphragm underneath the rib cage, so just to talk about internal organs, uh, in terms of heart, heart, the heart is slightly placed towards the left. In terms of lung lobes, we have two lung lobes on the left-hand side. We have three lung lobes on the right-hand side. In terms of liver placement, it's on the right-hand side, it's slightly superior to a left-sided um, In terms of uh, intestinal tract, we have completely differing and altering organs all through there. Um, so, by nature, the human body isn't as symmetrical as we think it is, um, that heart and liver placement and the lung capacity actually means the right side diaphragm is slightly more efficient than the left side of diaphragm. You see a hell of a lot more left rib flares, so the left side of the ribs extend out a little bit further. You can definitely see this on bench presses when you look down over their face, over their ribcage. Um, And they take that breath in before they come down. Their left side sits slightly higher than the right, more often than not. Um, The human body is asymmetrical by structure. So these asymmetries, they're not the end of the world. Some people just can't be symmetrical in a bilateral pattern just by nature of how they're made up and the activation patterns they have.
0: Yeah, so to expect symmetry and chase it is kind of a bit of a lost cause.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, In all of our assessment processes, we... We look at left compared to right, particularly when there's pain present, but we're never trying to make the left and the right completely the same. Um, there's also added, like, in terms of like, when you're developing as a child and the activities that you do. So with the baseball population that I work for in America or work with in America, all of the, the pitches, depending on which arm they were throwing all of their, their balls with, so left or right handed, um, that side of their body acted completely different to the other side of the body. And chasing symmetry in that population is just stupid. It's not going to happen because they throw balls all day, every day. Chasing symmetry in a powerlifting sense is a little bit more achievable, but it's still not an end goal because we're just not symmetrical people. None of us are. It's, um, it's like uh, Rafa Nadal's left arm is fucking yoked and his right arm's... Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, purely by the demands. The said principle is fantastic. The demands placed on the left arm have caused that to happen. Yeah. So this the, symmet- the symmetrical thing I don't think is as big an issue as people would, would say. Where it does come into big play, though, downstream, lower body, if you have a stronger leg and a weaker leg... And you don't address that, you're going to be in strife at some point. Alex
1: has two left feet when he dances. Yeah, nice. Notorious. So he's going to be strife. Yeah, he's, he's
2: strife going to
1: be in Yeah, 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 yeah um, definitely. But yeah, asymmetry is down below
2: in terms of strength. Uh, and I guess on a bench press, if you have one arm that's just way stronger than your other arm, that's something you may want to uh, really attack. Will's
0: got two weak arms.
1: Yeah. Yeah, balanced. Yeah. Injury prevention, because obviously you can't can't put much load through them, and they're balanced, so we're good. It's a it's a protective mechanism. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, so so next interesting question, um, I think it's interesting, is about training in multiple planes. So I've um I've had it put to me by people that know more about anatomy than me that rotational strength and lateral stability are really important. Um, even for moving in the sagittal plane. So forward and back, like we mostly think of powerlifting and I've had it put to me that hip, like hip extension strength, for instance, would be really related to lateral stability. Um, but I'm not entirely sure how the relationship works. Do you think that that's important? And like, how would you address it in training?
2: Without a doubt, this is one of the biggest things that we push at strength culture, uh, if you think about, so the way I like to look at this in terms of strength and conditioning, so my strength and conditioning background, I call myself a strength and conditioning coach before I'm a powerlifting coach because powerlifting at the end of the day is a sport and the coach that they hire should have a grasp of all of these other facets and then they just look powerlifting. Powerlifting is a subsidy under. Um, so in terms of strength and conditioning, understand. Well, I think we've just dropped out. Are we still on?
1: I can't hear. Sorry, I'd muted myself. Um, you had yes. said powerlifting was a subset of strength and conditioning and that the coach hired yeah. should have knowledge of those things. Then you cut out. Yeah, yeah, sorry. So,
2: yeah, I definitely believe that um, a strength and conditioning coach is hired – to help an athlete express the skill set that they have or develop the skill set they have, the physical qualities. And when we look at like the triad of athletic performance, we have sort of three areas that we can attack. We can attack the technical tactical side, which is almost like your skill work. Uh, When you think about a soccer player, it's their ability to kick a ball and the plays they run on on a on a, um, on a field or in a game. You'll also have the psychological side, so the mental side, the drive to compete, the drive to train, the drive to be just competitive, really. Something that I don't have. I don't have that competitive thing in physical traits. I have it definitely in other aspects of my life. And then also your physical qualities. So the, the body's ability to handle the loads that is forced upon them from the sport. And this is the area of... Uh, powerlifting coaching that I think is completely missed nine times out of the 10. And that is that we are human bodies expressing, or we are humans expressing strength on a powerlifting platform. And the human body is designed, as we talked about, it is designed to work in all planes of motion. It is designed to access full ranges of flexion and extension. You should be able to hold and maintain a neutral position while the hips and the shoulders function away from that. Um, it should be able to tolerate all of these different positions. And part of that for us is with powerlifting in general, as we talked about, it's completely forward and backwards, up and down. And if you never access those lateral um, those lateral ranges and those rotation ranges, just like you do with sitting, just like we talked about with the ability to get your arms overhead uh, and the shoulder blade positioning the powerlifting drives, you start to lose access to those ranges. The imposed demand means that we're going to, to purely adapt to the things that we're exposing the body to. So if we never are exposed to those frontal plane movements, those rotational movements, we start to lose function within those ranges. And then that's when we start to get issues arise. Um, The human body should be, yeah, the hip, exactly. The human body should be, uh, is designed to be bipedal. It's why we all stand. It's why we move the way that we do. It's why we're really efficient runners or we should be. Us powerlifters definitely aren't, but the human body should be a very efficient locomotive machine. Um, and part of that being in one side, we call it hip splitting, having one leg in front and one leg behind requires a whole bunch of rotation and frontal plane stability. Uh, and if, if all you do is powerlift and all you, the only training that you do is access to bilateral sagittal plane You're going to lose that and then your um expression of of all other movements at the hip and at the core just start to just get heavily reduced so yeah without a doubt frontal plane stability drills core stability drills in the frontal plane transverse are key 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 again the longevity you got to look at it from the longevity side of things
1: cool um at weekly weights we love feet um alex particularly and Something that something we speak about um, a little bit is is the importance of, like, creating a strong tripod foot position for things like the squat and the deadlift. Um, and involved in that is having a stable arch and having appropriate control of pronation, subination, inversion, eversion, and so on. Um, and that's related to hip and knee function as well as ankle and foot function. Um, I'd love to just sort of get your take on how, like how important that is and sort of how you can teach it and diagnose issues at the foot in powerlifters.
2: Yeah, definitely. Uh, Again, I just want to preface this whole answer with saying that if you have flat feet, uh, a lot of people, they believe that just having a flat foot is some inherently wrong thing about them. Uh, Again, it's, it's just a presentation of how your body is it doesn't mean that you can't squat and deadlift. It's not the sole reason why your knees in pain. It's not the sole reason why you, your knees come in and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing inherently wrong with having a flat or flat feet. Uh, It's not as big an issue as some podiatrists and all that sort of stuff uh, make it out to be. I don't believe anyway. Um, But yeah, definitely if you can get good connection between the big toe knuckle, more so than just the big toe, it's the big toe knuckle. So the big bulb under your foot. the fifth toe, so the big toe, little toe, and the heel. And if you can get really good connection with those three points, uh, and part of that is creating some form of arching stability pull underneath so that we sort of connect that fascia all through it, Uh, if you can then grab the floor with that and create some torque, the way that Charlie here at Strength Culture explains this is the floor can be seen as resistance. And when we push into that resistance and create stability with that resistance, It's going to help us stabilise everything else, up and downstream. So it's going to help stabilise the knee position. It's going to help us stabilise the tibia torsion that is occurring. It's going to help us stabilise the hip when we move through extension. So any time that we can use a little bit of resistance and get a little bit more stability through what is generally a mobile structure, the foot and ankle should be very mobile. Any time we can get some extra stability in that when we're trying to apply force, straight down we're going to get a massive massive benefit so yeah 100 percent it's key um the biggest thing for us the cues that we use definitely setting up that tripod foot trying not to let your pressure shift either to anterior so too far to the toes or too far to the heels having somewhat pressure through the mid foot and then also grabbing the floor with those three points pretending your hands are claws and ripping the floor apart just this is grabbing the floor and ripping it with your feet. Try and act like a monkey who would grab something and rip with their their feet. The same idea to the floor.
0: Yeah, that's Will's favorite cue. Grab the floor. Grab the floor.
1: Yeah, I, it's like Groundhog Day because I, I'm always like, yeah, you know, three points of contact, grab the floor. I like to use, um, sometimes I'll use the can opener, can opener analogy. I'll say like, imagine your, your foot's a claw and then imagine that the floor's a can and you're opening it. To get, opening up, yeah, yeah, to get people to actually Screw think it. of yeah, gripping it and screwing it a little bit. Um, but yeah, 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 I say that all the time.
2: You're, you're gripping the floor. You're grabbing the floor with your feet, and you're pulling into it. And that's why people, for the most part, don't squat and deadlift with shoes on. It's either barefoot, socks, a, a hard heel. As soon as you throw yourself on a spongy surface and you're squatting with, with runners on, you just lose that ability. There's the, the delayed proprioception at the ankle occurs because you've got a force that's not hard-end. Um, mm. And we just, yeah, nah. So squatting barefoot or a hard heel shoe or no shoes or, or like a lifting shoe because it's stiff and stable and you can grab it. So what?
1: Sure. what's the relationship between... Um between hip function and foot arches? Because people will talk about like lateral stability at the hip, and you, know, you were talking about knee valgus before, your knee collapsing in, um, and your foot arches. How does that work? Yeah,
2: so in terms of gait and locomotion, as I said, we are bipedal. We should be moving around a lot. It's how we're designed by, by nature and evolution. Um, the, the effect, we call this regional interdependence, So when there's an impairment at one point of the body, uh, the kinetic chain means so that the connection from all points of contact from muscles and fascia and bones, ligaments and all that sort of stuff, the connection from one point completely is affected by another point. So the easiest way for you to understand this would be that if you had a knee in the middle of a hip and an ankle and you made the hip and the ankle completely fixed, you didn't allow any movement at them, you poured cement inside of them, and then you then try to walk. The only way that you'd be able to walk with a stiff ankle and a stiff hip is by creating a lot of knee flexion and extension. And that's the only joint that now has the ability to move. So by stiffening up the hip and the ankle, we then force the knee to move through greater ranges. So this is regional interdependence. And obviously the things that are closer to where the impairment is, um, will be more affected than the things that are further away. So when you throw an ankle dysfunction, so something that's wrong with the ankle, it's going to greatly affect the knee and the hip and less to a lesser degree it will affect the lower back and to a lesser degree it will affect the upper back and to a lesser degree it will affect the shoulder because all those kinetic chain points are taking a bit of slack away from that dysfunction. When we throw a dysfunctional ankle on anything, we get impairment up the chain on Almost a lot of the things. For the most part, if you lose dorsiflexion and plantar flexion, particularly uh, in gait, you get a decreased ability to contract your glute max. Um, that's heavily uh, researched. You also, if you, choose, if you lose function of your big toes' extensibilities, so the amount of through your big toe, you lose function to that side, it just reduces um, the ability to push off and actually activate through that movement pattern. So you're always going to get upstream issues as a result of downstream impairments or vice versa. It doesn't really matter. Uh, in terms of uh,
1: what was your actual question? So I was saying um, people will relate lateral stability of the hip to control of the foot arch. Um, and I was just yeah. asking the nature of that relationship. You're on the way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, so definitely. So as
2: you go through a moving uh, – like a gait movement, so you're actually walking and, and turning the foot into pr- – uh, like it flattens out, the arch flattens out, so pronation or inversion. As you move through and you pick the foot up off the other end of that step – it sort of reverses, and then as you land, you land on the outside of your foot, you roll forward onto your toe, and then you roll off your big toe, and that's how gait should work. As soon as you lose the ability for the foot to rotate left and right, so supination, pronation, um, inversion and eversion, you then get a an effect up the chain because of that limitation. So you're going to throw the stability demand off up the stream. So 100%. If you lose the ability to either uh, control your arch or um, – control your big toe, control your ankle. In any plane of motion, it will affect upstream for sure. For the most part, if you flatten your arch, you get an internal rotation drive, the knee will come in, and as a result, that internal rotation, so the knee coming in, means that transverse glute fibres aren't really functioning correctly because they do the opposite. They externally rotate. So if you have one movement, the other thing can't be working. So all of a sudden, we lose a little bit of glute function there.
1: Okay, Um, and then the... I guess the final question on that topic would be, do you think there's value in doing um, actual f- training of the foot, like training of the arches themselves to strengthen them? Yeah, definitely. definitely. Uh, and again,
2: I will say that there's value in doing everything if you have preceded it with an assessment that tells you that you will get a positive result from doing that. So everything in our assessment process, if we find a small limitation uh, and we determine it, as whether it's being a stability-based dysfunction or a mobility-based dysfunction. If, if we then put an intervention in place and we retest and we get no improvement from the retest, that thing probably won't work in improving the, um, the, the complete, the global movement pattern. So if you assess and you think, hey, this person might have a foot issue that's causing a hip issue, and you address the foot and you do whatever you need to do, you might roll the plantar fascia, you might cue and coach some stability, you might increase their dorsiflexion or plantar flexion, their inversion or eversion, and then you go back and retest and get a positive result, the movement pattern improves 100% there is value in that. But if you go back and, and retest and there is no change in the now, there's a good chance it's probably not gonna help downstream either. So always precede with an assessment. And it can literally just be, look at a movement pattern, intervene, re-look at the movement pattern. Yes, no, what is the feeling like to the lifter? Do we get a positive result? And that will tell you whether or not it it has value.
1: So it's sort of do the things that you need to do that yield a benefit, but don't fluff around otherwise.
2: Yeah, and this is is one of the biggest things why we assess so much here at Strength Culture is because there's so many people doing cuff work and glute activation drills and all this sort of other stuff just because they believe that it's helping when if you actually tested and retested the, the outcome, it probably isn't doing anything and they're literally just wasting their time. So um, that's why we have such an in-depth assessment process that we go with everyone because you can, again, by painting that movement landscape straight off the bat, you can you know exactly where you need to be. It, it puts a roadmap on the course of their entire lifting, what this person needs. It's really, really, benefit. And that, that really, really beneficial and that's why I'm, I'm pushing so much assessment content. Um, from strength culture, because it can help every, every coach. Every single coach needs to, how to know how to assess.
1: Okay, so one last thing, and this is something that's been sort of a theme through your answers today, um, which is this relationship between strength and neuromuscular control, so your ability to actually contract a muscle and take it through its range and so on. Um, the relationship between that and flexibility or, like, mobility and length of muscles. And there's a saying that you know, people throw out, which is that what is weak will be tight and um and stuff like that and particularly in things like the hamstrings and the adductors the people who lack mobility often seem to lack strength when you isolate them um what implications does that have for the pallets and also sorry do you think that principle even holds true
2: yeah definitely all right so i'm going to preface this by saying eric cressy has a blog um and it's called why you feel tight or why you may feel tight or It's like 10 reasons why you feel tight, something like that. And it's got a video link and it's like a two or three minute video explaining all of the reasons why somebody's muscle might feel tight. Just to rattle off a couple of them that are fresh in my head. Um, As we talked about earlier in the podcast, the hypertonicity, you might actually have an increased neural activity to that, that muscle. So for the most part, people's upper traps get a lot of that. Um... People's lower backs can feel a lot of that hypertonicity. Um, you might get somebody who has hypertonic hamstrings, calf muscles as well. So that would be one reason. You just have generally a lot more activity from that. And for the most part, that means that in my eyes, you're not sitting your bones in the correct position. The, the, the skeletal structure supports the bone, the osseous structure. So um, when the bones are in a good position to work, um, the, the, the muscles that we think should be working generally work well. It's the reason why when you roll your hips underneath you, your glutes turn on and your core turns on. You've put the bones in the good position, so then you've got a really good activation pattern, and that's why we roll the belt buckle. But the first reason why somebody might feel tight is hypertonicity. We can also have scar tissue buildup. So somebody has had a damaged uh, either tendon or muscle belly, and that has caused some scar tissue. That's another reason why you might feel tight. You might have a capsular restriction at the actual joint itself. So there might be um, some accessory gliding. So some of those arthrokinematics have been lost. Um, so that's another reason why you might feel tight. You might have neural tension. So the, the, the neural system might be under, um, under a, a, a tensioned position. It might have a, a entrapped somewhere for the most part, the neural system doesn't like to be compressed or stretched, so that might be a reason why you feel So that's
1: specifically the nerve, sorry, you're saying, as opposed to your brain is sending a signal to contract, you're saying the actual nerve innervating that muscle might be compressed or something? Yeah, definitely.
2: A general rule for nerves, um, they don't like to be compressed, i.e. they don't like to be squished, and they don't like to be stretched. They don't have a lot of um, stretching potential. So... Anytime a nerve gets either compressed, it happens a lot through the underneath the collarbone, through the thoracic outlet, um, and that's where you start to get neural pain down the posterior side of your spine, the backside, through the radial nerve. You might get musculocutaneous nerve that innervates the bicep. Um, Anytime a nerve is either compressed, so it's, it's pinched down on, it will generally send off some little fuck yous, I like to call them fuck That It goes fuck you, fuck you, fuck you, and you get that neural pain. And that could present anywhere along the, the nerve. That's the first reason why the nerve might be a little bit um, annoyed. The second one is it gets stretched and it gets taut. Um, and if it gets taut, it will again just send a little fuck you down the stream and it will present somewhere along that nerve's innervation. Um, so that might be a reason why you feel tight. For a lot of people with... Hamstring pain, it could be sciatic pain where the sciatic nerve, one of the biggest, strongest nerves or one of the biggest um, nerves of the human body comes out of the lumbar spine through the hip complex. I think there's about a 40% of people that it runs through the piriformis muscle belly. Mm -hmm. So if any structure along that pathway gets compressive and tight, it might send off some sciatic fuck yous and then that's, that means that the sciatic nerve is, it has an impingement. Again, that's probably a referring out sort of thing. But there's many, many reasons why somebody might feel tight. So another big thing with the assessments, you can determine pretty quickly why the muscle is tight, just with some special test, provocative test or whatever, um, to work out what's going on and what's causing that tightness. For the most part, though, what I think, when powerlifters say, oh, my traps are always tight, so let's use that as an example, and then we'll use the hamstring example that you also use and the adductor example. Think about back to the shoulder blade position that we talked about with powerlifting. We have down and back. The upper traps elevate, so it does the opposite, and the upper traps upwardly rotate, so it does the opposite of that position. If you pull on that bone, and you, if you think about the bones, and if you pull down and just pull straight down, can you see how the upper trap? will get longer does that make sense
1: yeah
2: yeah so i would call this you know how we joked about earlier protective tension
1: yeah i
2: think think in this scenario the upper trap is actually protectively contracting and holding tone to not let those other muscles just continue to pull down and down and down so it's actually a protective tension that we actually, that's telling me, we need to let the shoulder blade get back up. We need to do some of those reaching patterns, some of those serratus and lower trap activation drills to help get those shoulder blades back up and take tension off the upper traps. So is it weak? Probably not. I don't really think anything's weak. I think it's just not in a position to do its job. So it's telling you, hey, I need I need help here. I'm, I'm firing to tell you I need, I need help. I need some support up here. We can take that exact same example and go to the hamstring. And this is the easiest for people to understand. When you dump your pelvis forward, um, your hamstring is longer. And it's exactly the same thing. The further you dump your pelvis forward, and if you think about like a salad bowl tipping the water out the front, the, the back side of the salad bowl gets higher and higher and higher. And as that lengthening occurs through the hamstring, eventually the hamstring is going to say, hey, I need some help. I'm holding on to dear life here whilst you're trying to dump this further and further and further forward. And that's an extended posture. So are the hamstrings weak? Probably not. They're just in a position where they are saying they're tight. So all of a sudden you've got tight hamstrings, you try to stretch them, that's not the answer. You try to do all this other stuff, that's not the answer. Now coming back to your idea of if you strengthen it, will it get less tight? Well, if we then strengthen the upper traps and the lower traps and the serratus, or we think we're strengthening them, and then they start to do a better job of elevating the shoulder blades and the tension removes, did we strengthen the muscle or do we put the shoulder blade in the position to take the tension away? Same thing with the hamstring. If we start to hammer posterior chain work, we get a lot more glute contraction. We start to control the core position. Are we strengthening the hamstrings through all that or are we positioning the bones underneath to take stress off the hamstrings? I think we're doing that, that the bones aren't in the right place and that's what's causing a lot of your powerlifting tightness. The QLs are exactly the same. The lats are exactly the same. Um, the anterior structures of your shoulder exactly the same. You see it over and over and over again. You need to train away from the powerlifts. I cannot stress that enough.
1: And you were going to do the adductors as well, just because I think this has been really informative listening.
2: Yeah. Um, so the adductor, the, the adductor magnus, can also almost be considered a um, a fourth hamstring. So it actually has function in hip flexion, hip adduction, and hip extension. It can also control a slight amount of rotation just by the nature of the structure, where it sits and the, and the, and the insertion points. So it has a bit of function, on extension, which is the same as hamstring. So a lot of adductor tightness can be a result of a dysfunctional hip extension um, sort of sequencing where the glutes really aren't doing the job they want, probably because the core's not in the position to let the glutes do the job they want, probably because your breathing is not in the best position, which is forcing you to be extended, which means that your glutes can't function, which means that your adductors and hamstrings now have to take the role of hip extension. So I'm going to say that, again, it's all upstream, core bracing proximal errors or issues that is leading to a lot of these just general tightness of feeling and again that's what i think they're talking about here which is just general tightness, because there are so many reasons why someone might feel tight read the Eric Cressy blog it's unreal
1: that's awesome um thanks so much dude i think we'll wrap up our formal chat here we're going to take another very quick break and then we're going to hit you with our patented four questions that tell us everything we need to know about a person you know those ones yeah let's right, go prepare yourself
0: Welcome back to episode 33 of Weekly Weights. We're here with Jamie Smith. We're going to ask Jamie now the four questions that tell us everything you need to know about a person. So the first one is, if you could take one person out to dinner, dead or alive, who would it be?
1: The Rock. He looks uncannily like Dwayne Johnson, eh? <laughs> <laughs> That's a shit joke. That is a, that is a shit joke. <laughs> here at Weekly Weights, we only do shit jokes. <laughs> No, the Rock, without a doubt. I
2: I love The Rock. He's on our wall here. Um, I, Isn't there some I talk of him he, running for president? Oh, he's just a man. Like, he's just what every man should be. I thought you were going to say Ziz. Oh, nah. I don't think... Nah, I think our personalities would clash. I like him from afar. and I, I feel like he'd be one of those things where, you know, when you see a, a really attractive person and you say... Oh, they're hot from far, but then you get close and you say, "Oh, they're far from good." Or they're good from far, but far from good. I think Ziz would be one of those things where, from a distance, looking at his persona, he'd be really, really cool. But then I I think if you actually got to know him, it might become a little bit, yeah. So
1: no, not Ziz. Let's go to someone I used to.
0: Oh, you go. I guess the question lends itself to someone you'd want to have dinner with, and not someone you'd want to do pingers with.
1: yeah true um we used to so alex and i met working at a fitness first and one of our colleagues was like mates with ziz she was a real party girl and she actually said he was a pretty good bloke um so we went through his file one time at fitness first and we're reading his notes and this was after he died so receptionists from all over the place were just putting in notes being like rip ziz bro and stuff but we're all gonna make it we're all gonna make it but as we um As we went further and further back, we had all the complaints that had been made about him at like, um, which was the fitness first he was at Mossman, I think. Uh, I'm sure he was in one starting with C. Um, Anyway, it doesn't matter. He's um, he had all these complaints made about him, like for dropping weights and stuff, and for walking around shirtless. And then, like, apparently, so apparently a PT has a go at him, and he tells him like, "Do you even lift?" And like, you know, I'm fucking Z's bra and all this stuff. And it's written in his notes. And I couldn't tell if they were a joke or not. But they were so funny because they had the actual Z's quotes. That might, have been the start. That-, that might have been the start of it all. It was all from PTs complaining about him dropping weights. Classic.
2: That's where this whole thing started. So funny. I can honestly say, 100% honestly say, strip culture is not being alive without Z's. Zero chance. Charlie and I started training together at 15 years old purely because it's Ziz. He was my Charlie's my first training partner. Um, we used to watch his videos, get the bus down down a fitness burst, and use take advantage of the uh, the the fortnightly free period in the holidays, the school holidays. Yeah, we used to do that. Literally, the only reason I started training was because it's is. So none of this conversation is only because it's is. I have mad respect for everything he's ever done and touched and. Hundred percent, But I'd rather have dinner with The Rock.
1: am going to pour out a bit of my Pepsi Max for Ziz right now, just on my piece of paper. Is there any clen in, nah, no <laughs> in there, Will? No, no clen in there. Yeah, and no saunas too on Weekly Weights. God, that's <laughs> okay. rough as. All
0: right, question two, Alex. Um, question two is who's your favorite athlete of all time?
2: Uh, LeBron James. Fuck yes. Have we had a LeBron yet? I said LeBron.
1: Uh, lame.
2: Pretty, And I I think after he just lost the recent finals, I have swung back across to say that Michael Jordan is the greatest player of all time. Disagree. I I would struggle to see Michael Jordan beating LeBron James in a one-on-one competition or a three-on-three competition with neutral players on either side. I just see the, the physical size, strength, power, speed... Everything that this man possesses, and I say, this guy is the best athlete of all time. He so, is number one. My, so
1: I'm going to show off my basketball pedigree. Alex is going to be so proud because I'm notorious for knowing nothing about basketball. If you say,
0: like, Shaquille Bryant, I'm going to cry.
1: No, nah, nothing to do with um, good old mate Kobe O'Neal. Um, <laughs> no, when <laughs> Michael Jordan left um, initially to go play baseball, so he retires the first time, his team had what just won the championship, one? right? Three in a row, yeah. Three in a row. He leaves, and they only lost, like, two more games, one more game that season after he's left. They lost one less. Yeah, they lost one less game without him, right, than the year he was last there. Yeah. LeBron James, when he first left Cleveland, they went from being, like, outrageous to losing, like, twice as many games, didn't they? Well, right, it's not, LeBron, even, it's
2: not even the team. It's the entire city falls to shit,
0: when... literally. like <laughs> Yeah, when LeBron left the first time, they... He was gone for four years, one. and they got the number one draft pick three out of four years.
2: And also, um, when he left Miami, they didn't make the finals the first time. When he came back, they made the finals straight away. He's just left again, and they're like bottom of the table. So there's a correlation here. I don't know is it's a correlation or correl- causation. It's, ca- it's causation. <laughs> there's a causation when LeBron leaves. Your team turns to shit, and your franchise turns to shit. LeBron is the greatest basketball player of
0: all time, but he's not the most accomplished, which isn't, yeah. which isn't Michael Jordan either.
2: Yeah, it's Bill Simmons and it's, all this. It's yeah.
0: um, Kareem. But anyway.
1: That's right. All but right. yeah,
2: LeBron James. And if, if LeBron couldn't make my dinner, uh, Stacey Keebler would be next, and then LeBron
1: James. <laughs> all right. <laughs> Okay, um, what's, which you know, movie... Who Stacey
0: Keighley is, right? No idea. WWE, right? Yeah, she was like an OG
1: diva. She's yeah, like WWE diva in yeah. The Rock days. Huge. All right. I would love actually WWE edition The Rock. Like, I like him now, but I loved him when he was kind of like... He was pretty jacked, but he was like... It wasn't that ripped, and he did that funny snorting thing when he was playing... When he was WWE, where, you know, can you smell what The Rock is cooking? Like, that was Prime Rock to me. I'm not sure if Fast and the if Furious Rock know, is up there. What the Rock is cooking!
2: <laughs> Imagine so him cooking you dinner. Imagine him cooking you dinner, and then he sits and has dinner with it. What do you reckon he's cooking? Jamie's so hyped right now. Load, load up a third
0: deadlift and go do it.
1: What do you reckon Rock would cook you for dinner? That's, that's your third question. Oh, uh, hundred 100% like steak and potatoes. Now he does those, like, epic cheat meals. He'd do one
0: of those, like, those fucking 10,000 calories of pancakes things.
1: I
2: reckon I reckon he hasn't cooked a meal himself for like 25 years. So you know The Simpsons when um, Super Nintendo Charmers or whatever creates steamed hams? <laughs> I, reckon the Rock,
0: I reckon The Rock's cooking steamed hands. has gone to Krusty Burger across the road. <laughs> yeah,
1: it's Uber Eats. The Rock,
2: 100%.
1: All right. So which movie or television character are you most like?
2: No. Uh... I think, um, uh, I would probably say, oh, uh, nah, I, I wanna say um, Barney Stinson, not Barney, not Barney Stinson, is it Barney drunk. Stinson? Oh, I met their Mother? No, 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 Barney. Barney on How I Met Your Mother. What's his name? Barney.
1: Yeah, he's not Barney, Barney Stinson, is, Bar- is he? Bar- yes, he is. Oh, who's Barney? Oh, that's Barney Gump from The Simpsons. <laughs> <laughs> so I was like, come oh, on, man. Gumble, Barney, Barney
2: Gumbel. I Yeah, say, I want to say him because he's like suave and just a cool dude. But I'm definitely not. So yeah, I'm going to go Happy Gilmore or Billy Madison. I think I'm just a guy who just wants to have a bit of fun. Yeah, intellect. Uh, yeah, pure intellect. <laughs> just have a bit of fun. Uh, just this is thing that Jamie said this episode. Then yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Billy Madison. I just want to have fun and
1: have a good time with my mates. So That's shampoo it. or conditioner. There's a bonus question. Shampoo is better. It goes on first and cleans the head. <laughs> right,
2: this is, is the first four questions ever. and smooth.
1: <laughs> <laughs> what a scene. What a scene. Oh, yeah. that is comedy gold. It just it talks about society in a way nobody else has. Yeah, it's good. All right. It's so, cool. question four. Question four. Your life's being made into a montage. What's the music that you set it to? Um, I
2: want to rock, rock. Dun, 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 dun. I want to rock. Twisted rock. Sister. I don't know who you yeah, it is. Twisted, Twisted Sister. sister. Yeah. So, there's nothing really exciting happening. It's just me just doing day to day mundane shit, but good That's you know, ironic, good.
1: Twisted Sister. I think that yeah. was Twisted yeah. Sister. Um, yeah. So have you seen the South Park? I'm uh, not South Park, the SpongeBob movie? No. Nah. It's so nah. funny. It's actually hilarious, but it's, it's a very convoluted story. It's for kids and high people. But basically, SpongeBob gets a ride back to Bikini Bottom on the back of um, David Hasselhoff, who turns himself into a boat and uses the power of his pecs to, to like, torpedo SpongeBob down into Bikini Bottom. <laughs> To stop plankton brainwashing everybody, and he frees their minds with the power of rock. And he plays, he plays "I'm a goofy goober rock," which is a cover of Twisted Sisters "I Wanna Rock." Right, and he like plays this face melting guitar solo, which blows up all the mind control devices of everybody in the town. There we go. Patrick's <laughs> walking around in fishnets and high heels and stuff while he does it, and it's just the best scene I think of any movie I've ever seen. Like it just spoke to me. I lost it. You got
0: very
2: specific yeah.
0: with that explanation, Man,
1: school, If you haven't watched it, it is so. Maybe even Hasselhoff. Maybe my ex are going to get us and save society. Okay, so when I was like, when I was eighteen, I was really fat, like 118 kilos fat, and I had like I had those proper fat man nipples, right? Where they like they were a bit inverted. And um, oh, you are. Right. Yeah, it was real bad. And um, I used to joke with my mates that like when I got in, like if I went swimming, cause you get a little bit cold and like your skin tenses a bit, it would like reverse them. Right. And so I'd look, you know, and so my man boobs would go more peckish and like my, my nipples would uninvert. And so I used to joke that I was like, I was like, you know, Will getting into the water and Hasselhoff getting out because I just, I do the slow walk and suddenly I'd have the pecks back and the nipples were out, you know? That's it. That's what you want. You want
2: transition. You want to be
1: able to access everything at any point that you require. That's it. Yeah. It's like your training philosophy. (laughs) Yeah. Only me swimming as husband. Yeah. (laughs) Nipples. Nipples instead of extension and flexion bias. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. All right. So one last job. We invite our guests at Weekly Wades to sing us a song. You said you didn't want to, um, but you had a story you wanted to share on air about why.
2: Yeah. This is one of my favorite junior Jamie's stories uh I think I was about grade five or grade six and I went to a Catholic primary school St Peter's in Bentley here, and part of that was we had to go to church I think every it was every two or three weeks it was about three or four times a semester uh, a, a term and we were sitting there once and they play hymns in between the parts of the, the the whatever's happening up there I'm not really religious at all anymore so I've got no idea what any of it's called but one of the hymns came on or a couple of the hymns came on and I was singing and I was just singing like I normally sing. And then my teacher was like, Jamie, I'm going to have to ask you to just stay back after this. And I was like, oh, no, no worries. And as a kid, I hated getting in trouble. Like I used to get like stressed. I, I cried a couple of times. Like I was like, what the fuck is going on? What's going to happen to me? And then she was like, oh, Jamie, I just want to know why you were being so disrespectful to Jesus and the religion whilst you were singing. And I was like, you mean, this? Which is like, you were just like, you were disrespecting the song. Like, you weren't trying to sing. You were very loud and obnoxious with and the singing. I'm just trying to sing. And that was when I stopped singing. So I don't sing much anymore because I was bruised. My ego was bruised by one of my early teachers. What was so that teacher's I name, Jamie? Oh, I can't even remember. So Miss Parnell, maybe?
1: So your singing is Miss so bad that Jesus doesn't even love you when you do it.
2: No, Jesus loves us all, man. We're all going to make it. Don't you know that? Don't you worry about that. We're <laughs> all going to. Is Jesus Ziz? <laughs> Possibly. 100%, man. Don't deny it. Jesus.
1: 100% 100%. No, he was the son of Zeus, bro. Different thing. Remember that's what he used to say? They're all connected. It's all the same thing up there. They're all worshipping the sun, I
2: believe. That's all right. Man, that's another.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's all interest.
2: Ziz uh, oh, is my Jesus.
1: You know what, Weekly weights actually kind of has that religious undertone now because we do do the little musical break in between each sermon. So like we lay down information for a bit, stop, play some music, everybody sings along, kumbaya, I've got the guitar, and then we're right back into it. You said doo-doo again. Did I? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was a bit doo-doo, like doo-doo. doo-doo. No, like doo-doo is in poo. All right, yeah. Yeah, very good, Alex. All right, final thing. Jamie, people can find you at Melbourne Strength Culture The Gym, um, you have a YouTube yep. channel. Do you want to just rattle off how anybody can get in touch with you online for us, please?
2: Yeah, definitely. Um, we have a website, melbournestrengthculture.com, because the end goal is to go international, so we didn't use AU. E. <laughs> but Melbourne, melbournestrengthculture.com. Um, YouTube is just Melbourne Strength Culture. You just search anywhere Melbourne Strength Culture, you'll find us. Myself personally on Instagram is J.S.mith.culture. Uh, And if you want to email me, Jay Smith at Melbourne
0: So I highly recommend that you guys check out the YouTube videos on the Strength Culture um, YouTube. They're very informative. You'll get some graphs of some of the stuff that we spoke about today. So if you have any, like, if you want to do any further um, learning, go check them out because they're great videos. Um,
2: And just one last thing we actually are coming to Sydney. I know you guys have a bit of a reach in the powerlifting community, so I would like to just plug myself here, but we're actually coming to Sydney in March. I think it's going to be the 24th of March, um, to run both our lower and upper extremity seminars. Um, where we touch on a whole, this sort of stuff, but in like hours worth of content. Um, are you we doing that? The, that will be at city strength. Okay. Sick. Yeah. yeah. Awesome.
0: So yeah. you can, um, use yeah. weekly weights 20 for 20% off of, uh, of those, uh, if, um, those we,
2: seminars. we might be able to sort out a, a weekly weights, um, Maybe hey, you get the coaches down at a heavily reduced rate. But we're definitely not doing discounts because we're coming up, we, we need to cover our expenses on this first one. That is the end goal. So as long as we can probably sell about 15 tickets, I think we should be fine. But um, that will be
1: happening next year. So I'd let uh, you boys sleep on my couch, but you'd probably hit on my mum, wouldn't you, you rogue?
2: Uh, probably. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so so look out for that if if you are up up there in Sydney because I know our reach isn't as big as it is here in Melbourne, but we do want to. We think we, it's it's vital information, we, and we do know we can help a lot of lifters and coaches better understand some of this stuff. So, so
0: I think it's that'll be in March. I think it's available for that now.
2: Not right now. We're still in the just the details with um strength and, and working out the all that sort of stuff. But um, it was. I'm 99.5% sure that it will be running. Uh, we've got the all clear. So as long as there's nothing stopping us, we'll be coming up. Yeah. Cool. Once Tickets t- will probably go up early early next year, once, January. Yeah, once that's up, let us know. And we'll um, plug it on the show for you. That would be great. Thank you very much. Appreciate
1: that. All right, sick. Thank you so much for joining us, man. This has been a really good episode. Um, I'm Will. I'm Alex. Um, this is Jamie. Bye. Bye. See you, mate. Bye.
2: <laughs> Have a good one.